Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Max here. I just wanted to tell you that I recently got my real estate license in the state of Rhode Island. So if you're interested in buying or selling a house in the state of Rhode Island, please contact me at maxwillett.kw.com. That's M-A-X-W-I-L-L-E-T-T dot K-W dot com. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. I'm your host, Max Willett, and today we got another great guest on. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Uh, hi, I'm Jeremy Bergantini, a U.S. Army veteran and founder of the Tapped Foundation. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to, to come talk on the podcast and tell us a little bit about yourself. So like we start off every podcast, um, I'd love to hear your, uh, you know, what you're doing now, and then eventually we can get into your life story and how you got to what you're doing now. Uh, right now, I am a triple major with a minor and a certificate program at URI. I'm about to apply to the Accelerated Bachelor's to Master's program as well, studying anthropology, archaeology, and studio art. Very cool. I don't really know anything about any of that stuff so i mean if you want to go into into how you know how you got into that stuff that'd be pretty cool so as a kid uh one of the first things i ever drew actually were the egyptian gods in like my sixth grade class Mm -hmm. and i've just always been fascinated with the culture ever since that kind of led me to start digging in the in the ground a little bit in the backyard and uh parents said well if you're gonna dig dig with the purpose Mm -hmm. so i started learning about archaeology and Took a little while after uh, after the army, but I'm finally back to pursue that goal. Very very cool. So I have a question for you: Were the pyramids built by aliens? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. No. All right. So let's get into your life story. You know, let's talk about you know, yeah, just your life story. Right. Um, Go back as far as you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, well, high school was uh, something we can kind of gloss over mostly mm-hmm. it was a typical high school high school yep. student you know c average nothing special started dealing with some loss around that time with uh, my aunt who ran the exeter rescue uh, she passed away of a brain aneurysm while i was in high school and that kind of started started to hit me with the dose of reality sooner than some others um my father started a scholarship program for her in her memory uh the kms memorial scholarship fund mm-hmm. to help first responders and people who wanted to get into uh, uh, community service, I guess I would say, or emergency services to um, help get them on that path, give them, provide them some funds to start going to school. After that, uh, I spent some time at CCRI. I ended up dropping out at the station nightclub fire. I lost a friend to that and uh, played in a band for a while. Did a couple of live shows, kind of moseyed about through life, not knowing where to go or what to do for a bit. Found myself in the Army in 2007, where I deployed to Iraq in 2009. Uh, in 
ended up getting injured in Iraq, spent some time at the Warrior Transition Unit at West Point, which was kind of a forgettable experience. And then um, after I got out of the Army, did some more odd jobs for a while, trying to, you know, put food on the table and support my family mm-hmm. while I could. But uh, the injuries kind of, they piled up and my doctor eventually took me out of work against my wishes because I couldn't feel my right arm anymore while I was working. And he's like, yeah, you, you can't work like that. Um, so after working with Senator Reed's office for about six years, I finally got my GI bill back and started going to school to try to give myself some more direction in life again. Very cool. So what made you want to get into the army? I was kind of bored and just rudderless. I didn't know where I was going in life. Didn't know what I was doing. Um, as I mentioned, the station nightclub fire really, really took a toll on me. Um, I wasn't there, but I was supposed to be. So losing one of my friends during it, who I was supposed to be with really, really hung heavy on me for a while. And, uh, I kind of didn't care what happened to me. So I joined the army figure and at least I might die doing something fun. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I don't regret joining, but it definitely wasn't a place for me to build a home. Yeah. Do you, do you, um, I mean, I understand if it's tough to talk about to Would you like to expand about your experience while you were in the army? Uh, yeah, I, I can touch on it a little bit. So I, I will say that, the structure that the army provides and that the military provides was beneficial. It, it did help order me a little bit, but, uh, my, my nonconformist attitude definitely didn't gel with their need to conform. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a little bit of time out in Germany before I deployed trained as an electronics tech, which I didn't get to do in Iraq. They quickly made a new, new, platoon for those of us that were too new to the uh to the unit and we ended up working in uh, what was called detainee holding basically anybody that was either apprehended or captured uh we had the pleasure of um guarding them and and you know making sure that they were safe on the base and whatnot we had uh after a while i started doing it was called the aerostat it's uh basically a a big helium filled blimp Mm -hmm. that has like a million dollar camera on the bottom of it that can see crystal clear about seven miles away. Wow. What made them go with a blimp? I'm not, I'm not not sure why they went blimp. Yeah. I, I think it was because it, it could just stay tethered in one spot for a while. Okay. And it was just to, it was mostly base surveillance for Mm -hmm. us in Iraq. Uh, they use them a lot on the borders now down towards, uh, the Mexican border. Um, it was it was an interesting time. Yeah. Met some decent people. Yeah. Met some not so decent people. Um I don't keep in touch with anybody from the military anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I had we had one person on who is in the National Guard, Mark D'Souza, uh, who uh is a pilot. Um, but uh yeah, I mean I couldn't imagine what it was like over there. I mean I've sort of been just cooped up in Charlestown, Rhode Island for most of my <laughs> life. So, uh, well, I thank you for your service. And uh, I know it's not easy being out there in the Middle East. So thank you no. for that. I, I will say one positive thing, because I, I feel like everybody only talks about the bad stuff. Yeah. And 
yeah, there's a lot of bad. You're in a war zone. But to find any beauty in that is kind of what gives you some solace. Mm -hmm. The sunsets out there were some of the most beautiful sunsets I'd ever seen. Hmm. It's, you know, if you can separate where you are and what you're doing and just kind of find some, a little bit of heaven in that area of hell, (laughs) it, it, it helped. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your experience with that. Um, so, I mean, if we want, if you want, we can get into a little bit more, um, about your life. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, Lowe's. You worked at Lowe's for a while. I, mean, I did. I, yeah. If you uh, want to talk about that. So up until I joined the Arm, it was one of the jobs I was doing. I worked for my father as a carpenter mm-hmm. and I worked part-time at Lowe's. Well, part-time was 30 plus hours. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I did about 70, 80 hours a week. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I joined. I was like, I, I'm just slogging away and I'm, I'm doing nothing. Yeah. So, uh, after I came back from the army, I found out cause I was looking for a job. I found out at a career fair that they didn't take me off the books. I was still employed by them just on military leave. Mm-hmm. So they quickly said, Oh, if you want a job, you have a job back. So I jumped back into it. But again, after the military, it was, you know, I can't just be a customer service agent. It was, Dealing with the public was very hard for me and my mentality. I was trained in MP training and stuff for the detainee platoon. So there was a very different aspect of me that came back. Um, I quickly asked if I could apply for loss prevention. Mm-hmm. And that uh, <laughs> after almost being denied the position because I had tattoos, hmm. my store manager at the end of a year came around, apologized to me and thanked me because I gave him the lowest shrink numbers in the entire region as a rookie LP and brought the first 365-plus uh, days without a single incident, whether it be customer, vendor, associate, anybody coming in or out of that building. We had no incidents for over a year. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so you worked. So if you want to talk about um, the third point, I don't want to try to pronounce that city. Or that oh, name. Is that Djibouti? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's Djibouti. Um, Djibouti was a it uh, well is a country in the Horn of Africa, right next to Somalia. Okay. Which was interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I went from the military and being in Iraq and having my own sidearm and being able to protect myself to hey, if we get bombed, there's a couple of concrete shelters over here. Just go hang out for a while. It's like, whoa, whoa, okay, what did I just get into? Yeah. But uh, building the base itself was was interesting. Um, I learned a lot about government contracting and yep. how you work to the contract. You, you know, I got yelled at for working too fast. Yeah. Um, but the experience itself, I mean, being outside of the military, being in another country like that or developing country, was. I mean, you gain a lot of, uh, you get, you get humbled. So, so let's talk about how you got into that position in the first place. how did you find yourself in that country? That was before I knew about the Lowe's job still waiting for me. Yeah. As soon as I was back from West Point and finished, well, as soon as I was ETS from the army, I can't say finished treatment because with PTSD, it kind of never ends. Um, I needed something. (laughs) <laughs> to do yeah. i needed something to put food on the table yeah and one of my friends said hey uh you were a carpenter why don't you go try and work for the government I was like, okay why not mm-hmm. so i 
put in for the job. They had me lie and say that I had worked with commercial materials before because I never had. I was a residential carpenter. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, just tell us that you worked with steel studs. And next thing I knew, I was in Djibouti working on Camp Lemonier, hmm. a joint expeditionary base between the French and the American uh, militaries. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we, if you want to expand a little bit more about your time there, like you were saying before, uh, you can expand a little bit about your time in Djibouti, uh, working on the on the base. I mean, when you built it, were there any experiences that stuck out that you were like, uh, "Well, this is kind of interesting"? Because you had mentioned about, um, you know, you know, getting bombed or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was there anything um, else while in the building process that you found interesting? It was interesting to see the way that they built the structures. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how much I can dive into it because okay. I did still have an active secret clearance at the okay. time. So I just, I don't want to step on yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, okay. It, it was interesting to see, I can say, uh, like for working in that building, um, no cell phones were allowed in. And mm. it wasn't for photos. I mean, that was part of the reason. But it was mostly because the uh, the signals that bounced off, once they went into the building... They couldn't come out of the building and they didn't want any type of interference with anything. So that was, mm-hmm. that was really interesting to learn. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you can't say like what the purpose of it was, what the purpose of the building was. Um, I'll call it the boom room. Okay. That's what we called it while we were building it. Yeah. It's essentially, it's where all of the, um, all of the electronics were kept for, pretty much all of the systems um the flight deck wasn't far from us i'm pretty sure that's where they were going to be operating the drones and everything out of okay and when where where did you live did you live like near the base or did you live like sort of in like a town near both okay Uh, at the start i was uh what do they call it um just in the community um there's a phrase for it i'm blanking on it right now but I, I did that for a couple of weeks while I was there, but being so recently removed from Iraq yep. and the mindset and the actions of a lot of the, the, the citizens there were very similar. It was very hard for me to stay out in, in society, and uh, I, I asked to get moved onto base after a little while and stayed in something called a CHU, C-H-U, a containerized housing unit. Mm-hmm literally take a conics box cut it in half lengthwise and put two people in it <laughs> and that's what you live in yeah it was not fun <laughs> so so the culture in that area was definitely still developing like it was still like a third world country-esque or was it yeah the way so i don't want to speak bad of the country but yep. if you have your back to the city and you're looking out over the ocean it's one of the most beautiful things you'll see yeah the the disparity between the upper class and the lower class there is yeah. very very clear to see the governor's mansion was a mansion surrounded by armed guards with an 8 foot wall uh 8 foot tall wall around it yeah and literally right outside of that you would have people sleeping on the street with cardboard over them if anything yeah. uh most of the buildings around it didn't even have glass in them wow it it was that's why I said before it was humbling. It, it was really 
you, know, you, you can't leave a place like that without learning a few lessons and, yeah. and seeing just how much the elite can really trample upon everybody else. Yeah. So what did they describe themselves as, like a democracy, or is that sort of like what they describe their government as? Mm, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, personally, I wouldn't describe it as a democracy, yeah. it, you know, maybe a faux democracy. Yeah. You know, something like Russia, where they're holding fake elections, and yeah. no, no one else is but the one person who knows that he's running the country wins. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, especially with the, with the governor's mansion being that guarded my guess is that it's not as democratic as they put it off to be so was that the the governor of the like the country or was there a president or was that just the governor of the area i you think were it in? was the governor the governor of the city of djibouti okay because i was in the capital city djibouti is the capital of djibouti yeah and uh i i think it was just for that for that city okay but if the capital has that much disparity to it yeah you know yeah i could imagine what the rest of the country is like yeah yeah, well, it's unfortunate because it seems like a lot of those landscapes and those areas are absolutely beautiful. But and the just, people, the people are great people. Yeah, it's just they're oppressed. Yeah, by their own people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I like I said, I couldn't imagine what it's like. Been cooped up in Charlestown my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's I've gotten some experiences in in different places. I mean, even the people in Iraq weren't bad people it's just you know the reasoning that you're there it's it's tough for a lot of people to reconcile there's mm-hmm. so much that goes on and so much depth to everything a lot of times i think people are guilty of just you know reading things on the surface and not trying to dig any deeper into it what do you think the biggest thing you've learned from traveling to all these different places has been we really do have the foundations of a great country here yeah the a lot of the petty things that we look at and and, you know oh i i have to wear this instead of that today i mean they didn't even have glass in their houses like three quarters of the buildings were it looked like the way i usually describe Djibouti was take boston bomb it start to fix it leave for 10 years come back bomb it again and then just start living oh jesus and that's kind of how it was i mean it was just but they were still so friendly. Yeah. And I, I guess maybe that's one of the big things I learned was no matter what your situation is, you don't have to be a bad person. You can yeah. still strive to do and be better. Absolutely. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's a very interesting experience. Uh, so do you want to talk about how you're a certified open water diver? Too? That's, <laughs> that seems pretty interesting. That is something that has been a dream of mine for a long time. Yeah. Um, when I was probably 13, my older cousin, Edwin Gunn, got his license. Mm-hmm. And he brought his stuff over to the pool. And he's like, hey, you want to try this? Yes. <laughs> and for the first time ever, my father didn't have to beg one of us to vacuum the pool because I was thrilled to do it with the scuba tank on. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. And then after I got to, to URI, I finally got to fulfill that goal and got my own open water diving I'm also working on next semester is going to be underwater photography and film. Mm-hmm. And during January, I'm doing uh, research diving out in Belize with, oh, uh, wow. with URI. That, I just got approved for that the other day. Wow. Huh. So, I, you know, let's get into a little bit about, you know, your, your experience at URI, what you uh, like about it. Maybe if there is a dislike about it, uh, that'd be pretty interesting because I went to URI for two semesters. Okay. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. 
I mean, I went for engineering yep. and then COVID hit and then sort of my life kind of went all over the place. Yeah. Then, I started during COVID. I went in 2021 mm-hmm. and a lot of things were remote still, mm-hmm. which for going back to school for the first time in 20 years, that was difficult. It's not, it's, it's, it's not ideal. No, um, no. <laughs> Especially I, when you pay 10000 plus for school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for it, an online classroom. And, and you're going for that experience. And a lot of people, mm-hmm. I mean, not even me because I'm older, but a lot of the younger people that are just trying to go to college, you know, their first experience was that some people graduated during mm-hmm. COVID and they got mm-hmm. robbed of their graduation. Yep. That's, I mean, it's no one's fault, but that's, that's tough. Yeah, it is. Um, for me personally, the only complaint I really have is I I think they can do a little better with their veteran program as far as uh, when you're applying. My process, I mean, they, they were giving me math tests and all sorts of other things. I never even got a tour of campus. And then afterwards, like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't have gotten the math test. You know, you're coming in as a transfer. You didn't have to do this. We don't know why this happened. It's like, well, figure that out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's going to dissuade people, especially, I mean, I... It's been 20 years, mm-hmm. and you're giving me a, a, a test on stuff that I haven't looked at in 20 years. I'm not going to do well on that test. Yeah. You should know that, and you should sit there and go, oh, we already know. We're just going to give you this refresher course. Give me the course. I'd rather yeah. take the course than take a test that makes me feel stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it sort of reminds you of like a uh, corporation, and that's what it is. Yes. What, that's what URI is. That's what a lot of colleges yep. are they're corporations and there's so many departments so many people that like when you work at a place and there are you know different parts of this corporation and nobody ever meets each other mm-hmm. that's where issues start to begin it, it's the left hand right hand problem yeah yeah you know, they're both working but no neither hand is talking to the other and next thing you know they've both got fistfuls of the same thing yeah exactly so it, it, I, I think that's probably the biggest reason why they have so many issues is is and it's not it's not exclusive to the University of Rhode Island either. Oh, no, it's, no. it's like that at a lot of different colleges. I felt that way at the Community College of Rhode Island. I went there for a couple semesters. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's like that at other universities. But um, I, I was very lucky when I went there. I had a great um, uh, advisor. Or, yeah, I think that's what, yeah. And he was in the engineering department and uh, – he helped me. I emailed him like a year after I left URI and he was like more than happy to help me, you know, maybe get back to URI. Um, excuse me. So I had a, I had a pretty decent experience. Um, uh, would I go back? Probably if I ever had to, but I really don't want to ever. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, it, it's a lot, but I, I will say the faculty has been great. Yeah. Um, it's, like you said, it's the bureaucracy, and that exists mm-hmm. everywhere, especially when, you, when you're dealing with government funding mm-hmm. and public situations. It, there's a certain amount of red tape and stuff that you deal with. Yeah. It's annoying, but it, it's what keeps things going. What do you find the most enjoyable thing about your experience with URI so far? Probably the different personalities in the faculty. Yeah. Because every even if they're in the same departments, so I'm obviously in a lot of history classes with my majors Mm -hmm. and there, I mean, they're so different. Um, Dr. DeCesare focuses much more on native American and American history. Dr. Buxton is ancient history, Hellenistic history. 
Um, yeah, actually, I, I, I kind of want to give them some credit too. Uh, there's been a lot of work, I think, with Dr. DeCesare and Dr. Bovi and a few others to uh, really acknowledge the ancestral lands that URI sits on now, mm-hmm. and they're starting to to really acknowledge where the where the land came from, who was there first, and and give some indigenous people credit for you know, having the land taken from them, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, the history of the campus is being addressed more so, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's one thing to just attend your university, but to know about it and know its history, I think, means a lot more and matters. It, it's like uh, I have a, a Black Lives Matter course, and we talk about historically black colleges a lot. Mm-hmm. Same same purpose, you know. Their history matters to everyone that goes there. Same thing with anybody anybody else. It doesn't matter who or who you are, what your creed is. You should know your history and you should know where you came from, so you can have some pride in it. Absolutely. What so? What class do you? So what are the history classes you are taking right now? Uh, uh, the, and then I can ask you some questions about those. Right now, I'm in uh, colonial history up until 1760. 1765 or so mm-hmm. I, I might be a little off on the date so but uh next semester i'm doing history of the north american indian i did hellenistic history last semester um ancient greek history and archaeology that was one of my first classes mm-hmm. and that was with dr buxton who does not know how to teach at a 100 level it, it uh i was asked if i quote survived dr buxton's class out of 76 of us, five of us got an A. Wow. She, it's not that she's impossible, but she's, she's rigid. She, and she's big on respect, but she, I mean, she knows her stuff. She's, mm-hmm. and, and I've come into that a lot. All the professors there, uh, Dr. Dunsworth in anthropology, Dr. Bovey in anthropology. I mean, they've all written books and they've all been on, on documentaries and, it's nice to know that your professors are well well respected in their fields. So, which class that you have taken is uh, piqued your interest the most? Hellenistic history is definitely the one I like the most. And that's um, that's Greek, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a little Greek and Roman. It's kind of in that whole region. Okay. Um, but it's so you've got classical which is essentially prior to Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. And then Hellenistic is essentially after him, I would say, a little bit of his time too. Um, And that's, I've just, one of my tattoos is the Egyptian Book of the Dead. I've always been fascinated with really old cultures and how they, you know, the aqueducts in Rome and how they managed to do some of the engineering they did. It Mm -hmm. was just, it it was incredible ingenuity at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, I be interested to hear like what the course of the class is and what they're covering so right now uh the uh colonial history to 17 whatever that one is dealing essentially with the foundations of america yep. especially new england it's yep. a lot of new england history uh king philip's war which to the area we're in is extremely important uh, massachusetts new york connecticut and rhode island all share some history with uh, king philip's war and that's something I think people really should know more about. It tells a lot about the shift, I would say. Um, in early times, we learn about you know some of the... There was a little bit more reciprocity with the Native Americans and, and with colonists until 
more and more colonists came over and mm-hmm. they were trying to push into that native land more mm-hmm. and natives went, wait a minute, we, what do you mean you own this land? No, no you don't. Yeah. So it's, it, it's been a learning a lot of that and, and a lot of the different cultures between the two. Um, and the, the Hellenistic one was obviously all, all throughout Alexander the Great's time. Um, the fall of Rome, the rise of Rome, uh, Greece, Santorini, no, Atlantis does not exist. Oh. I know I'm going to break a lot of hearts with that. Yep. I, I'm not going to say who, but there's a, a few uh, professors outside of URI who get asked to do some documentaries for the History Channel and, <laughs> and talk about Atlantis. <laughs> and Dr. Buxton had asked them, you know, but you you know where the story comes from. Why do you keep going on these programs? Like, well, it's fun. And, and they, they give me a trip me. to Santorini every year. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, why not do it? And, but it's, I mean, yeah, it, it, it Atlantis is a great myth, but Plato was, it, it was more of a commentary of the day, mm-hmm. but had to be done in a safe way. And that's a lot of what we were learning is how people talked. A lot of the philosophies of the time, uh, going through Plato, and just discussing essentially the upbringing of a lot of the a lot of the uh, the leadership of the day, mm-hmm. which is really interesting to learn about. Is there anything that um, they talk about in Rome? Right. So I've heard this talked about on a podcast before. Uh, so the fall of Rome, people are making comparisons. <clears throat> I don't know if you. Um, if you're still, I mean, you're still in the class, obviously, right? And you're still learning about the fall of Rome, or have you? That was uh, last semester. Was okay, so that was last so, semester. Yeah. Okay, so do you see any similarities between modern society, whether that's here or in other countries, of the fall of Rome and now? I know it's a loaded question, but I'm <laughs> curious to hear your thoughts on that. I would say indirectly, yeah. Because Rome, one of the reasons that it fell was the empire got so vast and so large. There wasn't really a central place that could run the entire situation. They had mm-hmm. multiple places that kind of you know you take care of this section, you take care of that section, and you just when you start to when ambition starts to weigh heavier than anything else you start to run into problems. And I think we do see a lot of that nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, selfishness, people that decide that what they want is what everybody else should want. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a fair amount of that. There was... Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's an indirect comparison. I, I mean, there's just so much different between now and then. People are spread out more. Mm-hmm. The xenophobia is still there. We're at, we're seeing that rare its head even more lately, I would say. That was something that was very common back in the day. You know, if you weren't Greek, they didn't like you. If you weren't Roman, they didn't like you. Mm-hmm. Unless you did something for them. That was true about a lot of cultures, though. It was. It was a very unfortunate reality yeah. of a lot of cultures there was all a, across the world. Yeah it, yeah, it was more of a polarizing, you know, us versus them. Yeah. And I think feel like we're slipping back into that a lot yeah in, instead of you know we're all people who need to live on this planet absolutely together. <laughs> you see that definitely here you know with yeah. two political parties it's like 
Man, we're all trying to get to the same goal of just living in a great country where we all can be happy. The problem is, though, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. I, I feel like, and this kind of where, where I was saying, it, it seems like each side is too busy pointing to the other and saying, well, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And instead of saying, here's how we can do this differently together, yeah. it's just bludgeoning each other over the head yeah. and going, well, no, but your your way isn't right. I mean, you got one side who's saying they run on a platform of uh, supporting the police and less involvement with the government and personal affairs, but yet that's exactly what they're doing. They're telling you, we don't, we don't think you should be able to get abortions because that's against our religion. Well, we're in a country that's supposed to be a melting pot of religions. Mm-hmm. So why are you going to say the whole country has to abide by your standard? Mm-hmm. Now you're not, I mean, and some of them are straight up calling it the, the uh, what is it, the Christian conservative party now or something like that, or yeah. Christian nationals, which it's just furthering the divisions. It's not helpful, but then you've got the other side who doesn't know how to message, doesn't know how to get people together, and they're too busy twisting their own hats and saying, well, we can do this for you, and we can do that for you, and the other side won't do that for you, but neither side is actually doing what needs to be done for the people. They're Mm -hmm. doing what they need to do for their party. Mm -hmm. It should be about the country, not about the party. Mm -hmm. These aren't baseball teams. You (laughs) you You don't root for them just because they wear your colors. Yeah. Yeah. We all wear red, white, and blue as far as I'm concerned. Very true. Absolutely. So, yeah, maybe we need, and this is going to sound horrible, but we have a red party and a blue party. Maybe we need, you know, uh, I'll call it a shade of white party because of the flag. We need something that can bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Instead of people trying to, you know, four square pegs into round. Hey there, guys. Max here again. I just wanted to ask you to leave the podcast a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Please just leave us a review. It helps get more people to the podcast and learn more about life. So thanks for tuning in, everybody, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Holes and say, well, I'm a conservative, so I'm a Republican. Well, maybe we need to get rid of the labels. Mm. Maybe we need to just focus on the issues and, and actually enact change, mm-hmm. which... Nobody in power wants to do because that would change things for them. Mm-hmm. And once that changes, if you, this is where some of the the ancient issues would still happen. You know, um, you'd get demagogues and dictators and tyrants that would come in and say, "We're going to change this for you," and they would be supported up until the change. And then what they really wanted was change for themselves and mm-hmm. for their friends. And that's exactly what's still happening, just on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Last I checked, this country was literally founded off immigrants taking land from people that originated here, as far as we knew, and just everybody coming. I mean, when the Dutch, the French, the English, they all immigrated here. And now we've got those same people, their ancestors saying, or their, their relatives saying, well, we don't want immigrants. Well, you are if you go back a few generations. I mean, we're we're so caught up in our short-sightedness. Mm. We're not looking back. We're not looking forward. We're just looking at the moment. And I hate to tell everybody, but the moment isn't what's going to carry us through. You know, it's it's the future that keeps going. The moment ends right now. This moment's over. That moment's over. But the moments ahead are still ahead. And if we're not looking at those at all, we're not going to have this planet much longer. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, so I guess there's a little bit of similarities between ancient uh, civilizations and now and sort of the issues that they had. And The issues are the same. Yeah. It, yeah. We're more destructive now. That's History repeats itself, unfortunately. Yeah. Even, yeah. If, and even if you know it, I mean, knowing history allows people to navigate it better. Mm-hmm. You know, if look at January 6th and the attempt to overthrow democracy, the next person who tries that is going to look at that and go, oh, this didn't work. So let's do this instead. Mm-hmm. And that's what terrifies me is that we've opened the door to just allow people to do whatever they want. <laughs> and I don't know, that's, it, that's a, I, I get pretty passionate about that topic. That's okay. As, as a veteran, I shed tears on yep. January 6th. I yep. mean, I felt like I was watching our country die mm-hmm. and I still feel like it's in its death throes right now because the parties in charge are just too concerned about, well, we need to be in charge. Well, no, maybe none of you need to be. Mm. Maybe what we really need is to burn the entire system to the ground and start fresh because it's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. The electoral college system is antiquated and all it does is perpetuate the system. Popular vote. There's no reason we don't need it anymore. We don't have trouble getting from, you know, from person to state house or anything like that. The connectivity between people and branches is such that we don't need this three-month delay after an election to certify. We don't need the Electoral College to tell us that Jim over in Barrington is voting for this guy. He can do that himself, and we can get that record, and we don't... To me, the Electoral College muddies the water. Why do we have to, ha- why do we have to elect people to elect people? Why can't we just elect them directly? And I think term limits need to belong in every aspect of government. Mm -hmm. Career politicians, that is how you get into trouble because now it's a career. They're not doing it because it's good for the country. They're doing it because it's good for them. When the country was first founded, you didn't even get paid. Correct. George Washington didn't want the presidency. No. He was forced into it because it was the the right thing for the country. And he said, you're right. I will do this because it's the right thing for our country. We just started and we need somebody who's going to do it and people will listen to me. Not, oh, I'll get this salary and I'll get these perks and I can do this. And that's, it's, it's all about personal benefit now and it it needs to go away. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's, and especially when you have the same people that can vote to give themselves a raise. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Or lobbyists. Yeah. Imagine you're just at work and you and your fellow, you know, co-workers can just have a unanimous vote to give yourselves a 10% raise every year. Yeah. (laughs) You'd be making a million dollars and you put everybody out of business because nobody could afford you. And that's essentially what we're seeing is (laughs) the politicians are being paid so much and some of them are paid for life. Mm -hmm. Why? You're Mm -hmm. not still doing the job. I can understand, like the president. Okay. You get a secret service agent, you know, certain secrets and things like that. No objections to that. You need to be safe. You need to be protected. You don't need to be paid. Yeah. Especially you get speaking engagements and you have all this popularity after you're a president. Why Mm -hmm. do you still need to get a salary off the American people? Yeah. And lobbying needs to be illegal. Mm. Why is it okay for somebody to make a contribution or some sort of gift or something to a politician for them to then endorse their, their agenda when it goes antithetical to letting the people decide. Mm-hmm. 
in, you're not letting the people decide. You're deciding, well, I get this perk, so I'm going to do this because they want me to and I keep getting things from them. You're not listening to your voters or your constituents. You're just deciding arbitrarily, this benefits me, so I'm going to do it. Hmm. So I'm curious here. So have you done a lot of studies on like ancient Egypt and things like that? A fair amount. So um, we've never gotten onto into like history like we have like this before on the podcast. We never had anybody on. I think I think on this piece of paper you gave me, you should have wrote history nut because you know a lot about history. I, I am a bit of a history nut. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, let's talk about the structure of ancient Egypt and their government. Do you know if you have you studied a lot about that? Only the only personally, that's mm-hmm. actually one downside for URI and a lot of stateside colleges. They don't have a lot of Egyptology studies. Hmm. Um, some of it I got through the Hellenistic studies because it does tie in with uh, Cleopatra, Mark Antony. But most of it, if I want to actually get my PhD in Egyptology, I've got to either go to UC Berkeley or the University of Edinburgh. Yeah. That's the only places. But I mean... I- by my experience, experience is experience, you know? So if you've done your own research on it, I think you should be able to talk about it. I mean, that's all most people's political opinions are, and they feel like they can that share as an expert. So That is very true. I'm um, curious to hear, you know, what was the structure of it? And I think a lot of people just think, oh, it was just a pharaoh, and that was it. But was there so more to it than that? There really was, especially the the priest class was yep. very, very respected, Um Imhotep, who designed the pyramids, was one of the most renowned people in the entire country. Um, Women weren't really held in high regard, but yet they could still be a pharaoh. Mm. And I I think that speaks a lot to their culture, Mm -hmm. you know, to even if they had, you know, um, which one was it? I think it might have been Hatshepsut who portrayed herself as a male pharaoh. But she was still allowed to do that. Like, people knew that she was a female. She just projected herself as male because that was the quote-unquote power dynamic. Mm. But it still says something about the culture that they accepted it. And they they said, well, yeah, we know who you are, but we're going to let you do this because this works for us. It's mm-hmm. good for us. Um, and the building of the pyramids, something like that doesn't happen if you don't have structured workforce and a system put in place i mean it wasn't slave laborers building these things they've got uh i think it was might have been uh like five or so years ago there was a a little burial or not little um but a basically an acropolis that was found essentially right next to the pyramids where they found evidence of not just the bodies and the people buried but their diets what they ate how they lived they had some of the best food of all the people in Egypt mm-hmm. because they had to do some of the hardest work. Mm-hmm. So the, this notion that it was a, a yes, there were, there were slaves, but it wasn't a, it was a society with slaves, not a slave society. If that makes sense, that's actually a term from one of my history classes because America shifted from that. At one point we went mm-hmm. from a society with slaves to a slave society and then finally abolished it. But, uh, there is a difference in those meanings. You know, one is dependent upon and the other one incorporates them. Most Egyptian slaves came from war. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Native Americans. A lot of times they, if they had slaves, it was because of a warring tribe or they would bring in other, other members. Egypt operated the same way. Um, and their, their medical advancements were just incredible. 
I mean, even to be able to remove the brain the way they did and, and the way that they stored everything, that knowledge had to get passed down. Mm-hmm. So they, they had a very educated society mm-hmm. um, and a very successful, I mean, um, back to the Hellenistic, um, now I'm blanking on his name. Oh, Dr. Buxton would be so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I don't know, know anything about this. So. Um there, there was one uh, general from Alexander, mm-hmm. uh, Ptolemy. When Ptolemy left uh, Greece and went over to Egypt, he claimed Egypt as part of as his kingdom after Alexander had died. He had one of the most successful reigns and kingdoms, not only out of Alexander's generals, but out of, out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ptolemies reigned for, I think, four or five different generations and had a lot of success. The, the culture was prosperous. I mean, and they, they lived in harmony with their lands more. I mean, think about what it takes to have a river that you know is going to flood. It could devastate, but instead they used it to their advantage. Mm-hmm. And they, they based their civilization around these, these annual floods and, and knew how to, okay, well, if we do this, I mean, they tracked the flood levels and the waters. They knew if it was going to be a bad harvest, they could plan ahead so that they could have grain for the next year. I mean, that's, that's a really advanced society, especially 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So now we're going to, I think you touched on this before, but let's shoot over to that, the King Philip's War. You mentioned that. I don't know a lot about that war, but do you want to touch on that a little bit? I think so, I re- I'm really interested <clears throat> to get into this history stuff because I enjoy listening about history myself. Well, I, I enjoy talking about it, so this this will be a good match. Yeah. Um, we're, we're working on King Philip's War right now in, in Dr. DeCesare's class. It was per capita the bloodiest, most violent war in American history. Oh, wow. Um, I think it was one out of every four or five colonists died. Wow. The, I mean, the devastation on the Native American side was incredible. Thousands, mm-hmm. women, children, they didn't care. It, it was, it was a really, really bloody affair. Mm-hmm. Um, what year did it start? 1675 to 1676. They're not sure exactly how, but essentially uh, there was a Native American. He was a Christian Native American. He had converted, and he was living in one of the Christian towns, uh, John Sassamon, who kind of sort of is the catalyst for the war. His death kind of broke the tide, and, and mm-hmm. uh, or broke the levee, I should say, and, and allowed everything in. Um, after he was found, there was there was rumors that King Philip, uh, who his actual name was Medicom, uh, that he was going to attack English colonies because of their their encroachment and their uh, colonists were letting their cattle and their wild boar just run rampant over, over Native American crops. They were destroying their food. So between taking their lands and destroying their lands, you know, enough had been enough and they wanted to stop it. The colonists, after a few raids by Medicom's tribes, decided that we are going to march into your lands and we're just going to find you and wipe you out. So they started up in, they started at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. 
which is uh, today Massachusetts over by Plymouth, Massachusetts Bay, Connecticut, uh, New Haven, which the two were separate at the time. Connecticut and New Haven were different colony or different uh, settlements. Um, they all contributed, I think it was about a thousand soldiers. Rhode Island was actually not a direct part of the battle. It took place in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. But Rhode Island had said, you know, we don't want to do this. But at the same time, they allowed it to happen. So that's why I say not an active part, but they, you know, complacency or um, allowing something to happen on your doorstep is, mm-hmm. you know, you're complicit. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Williams, who was a friend of the natives at the time, he allowed it to happen. So that as much as we want to speak about him and what he did with natives, he also, you know, there were, everybody had some shadiness to them, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody wanted the land. So the, uh, the soldiers ended up marching down, uh, I think it was about 16 or so miles. They marched in middle of December, some of the worst weather at the time and of the region. It was a particularly um, uh, bad growing season as well. And I want to say that was, it was a period of about a three or four years where it was the coldest that it had been in New England. And it was abnormally cold, almost like a mini ice age kind of. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, all these factors kind of tied in. Um, a lot of it was also, the English were afraid of losing their identity. And the natives being so close to natives now, because the further they encroached on their land, the more they had to live next door to them, as opposed to, oh, they're 10 miles away. Well, now they're only about a mile away. Mm-hmm. So they started to feel like, well, why were the natives the way they were? In in colonial views, they viewed them as savages. And their thought was, why are they savage? Are they savage because they were always that way? Were they of the land and the land is what made them savage? Or is it because they reverted? Did they start off as civilized and cultured and now this is how they are? And the English were terrified that that would happen to them. So their solution was to wipe out the Native Americans. Weird solution. Yeah. um, (laughs) Fear and religion were probably the driving factors. Yeah. And with uh, the reason that John Sassamon is believed to have been murdered uh, and by by King Philip's men most likely was because he had divulged that Philip was looking to wage war on on the colonists and he was going to do some raids. They didn't end up taking his word for it. He ended up losing his life because he was essentially so, because he was an educated Native American. Yeah. He, he didn't fit into any culture. He had reading and writing. He could speak the Massachusetts language and he could speak English. But the English didn't want him because he was Native American. Yeah. And the Native Americans were like, well, who are you? Are, are you? Uh, this is so uh, one of the books that we just read um, by uh, I forget her first name. I think it might have been Jill, Dr. Jill Lepore. Um, she discusses how there was an incident where a native had come up on John Sassamon and uh, some colonists that he was with because he was an interpreter at the time. And they had said, well, you wear English clothes, but you're you're one of us. You know, who are you? Are you English or are you native? Mm-hmm. And Sassamon shot him. Yeah. Because it was, that was how difficult that question was. Like, he couldn't answer it and it was something that bothered him throughout his life he didn't know where he belonged anymore. Mm-hmm. See, 
even if you're seeking self-improvement, that self-improvement came through the English religion. And natives were opposed to that because it wasn't theirs. And it, it was some of that polarization that we talked about from modern times. But uh, to, get, to get back to the war, um, after marching the 16 or 17 miles in the snow, they were going to stop at a garrison, which the name escapes me at the moment. The garrison had been raided the day before by Philip and his men. Mm-hmm. So the garrison no longer existed. Uh, they ended up continuing down to Smith's Castle in North Kingstown. And then from there, stationed their people, uh, organized or reorganized, I should say. And then they had a... I'm gonna, I, not really a spy, but I guess a, uh, a traitor to the natives that uh, I think his name might have been Pete or something like that. He led the colonists into the Great Swamp. The Narragansett peoples, while all the other Algonquins were, were warring with the colonists, they said, you know what, we're, we're just, we're friendly, we're good in Rhode Island, we're not trying to w- fight anybody, but we're going to go ahead and, and create this fort to protect ourselves in case you guys decide to come after us, because mm-hmm. you kind of have a tendency to do that. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, the English came for them, found their fort, had the natives not run out of gunpowder it would have been a massacre in the other direction. Mm -hmm. The fort they had designed was very formidable. The colonists didn't even know what to do when they got there. It became a free-for-all. A lot of the Connecticut soldiers were like, okay, we're just going to go in and start attacking. Uh, I think it was Winslow. General Winslow, I think, was the the overall commander, and he didn't have a plan when they got to the fort. He just kind of, oh, okay, we're here. Um, Yeah, you guys go ahead and charge in. And they decimated everybody mm-hmm. that was like i said it was the bloodiest per capita so so many colonists and natives died that it was difficult for people to write about after mm-hmm. even contemporarily they were like i uh, most of the commentary was you know i could write more but it's not for me to tell or you know this is too heavy for me to write you know, I'm, I, I weep as I write these words, things like that, where it was just, it was so devastating to everybody. Um, and it really shaped the landscape in the region. If King Philip's War hadn't happened, things might have turned out differently. We might have had very different boundaries. We might have had different, different settlements. You know, they might have actually worked together, but didn't, didn't go that way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So we've talked a lot about a lot of different things, but the reason why you're here is to talk about the Tapped Foundation. Yes. So um, why don't we get into that, sort of the history behind why you wanted to start it and the goal of the organization. So as I mentioned early on, um, when I was young, my father had started the KMS Foundation after my aunt passed. That left a real big impression on me with trying to do something for other people. and Because it wasn't just, I mean, it didn't benefit the family at all. We didn't get anything out of that. It was just something that we had to do to, to process our grief, but it helped others. We helped put other people into college, and we held uh, golf tournaments and, and events that you know benefited the community. After the last 18 months or so, um, I've lost a lot of people. Uh, a couple of friends have passed. I had an aunt who passed away from Alzheimer's, a cousin who committed suicide at the start of my last semester. 
and he was actually the one who got me into art. So that one personally really, really touched me. Um, still kind of processing that one, honestly. But uh, my father also suffered from a series of 11 strokes in February. And between everything, I just, I needed to do something constructive. Mm-hmm. It, it's very easy when things are falling apart around you to kind of fall apart yourself. And after battling that for a little bit, I decided, well, what if I do something bigger? And I, I had started at first just trying to do a golf tournament for uh, stroke victims. This year we were going to help my parents because they do need the assistance. Um, that was one of the lessons I learned was victims of you know strokes, heart attacks, or any disease really, there's so much that you don't realize that it affects um, the day-to-day life. I mean, both my parents ended up being forced retired at that point. My mother already was. My father, we had to close his businesses between the regular bills and then the additional medical bills and unex- unexpected expenses. I mean, it, it buried them. And looking at that, I realized, well, if your parents are getting buried, so are other people. Mm-hmm. And it, it, thinking back again to, to my father doing the, the KMS scholarship, I, I said, well, why don't I make this something bigger and try to help a lot of people? And I started talking to, I, I've been a part of something called the PCVI, the Providence, Ven- Providence Clemente Veterans Initiative, which helps a lot of veterans that... Um, don't really know our place anymore and are still trying to find a way to be a part of society again. It's it's a humanities course that's really trying to help us with that. And honestly, it's a big reason why I'm even still here today. Um, a couple of them have appreciated some of the things that I've had to say in class, and I spoke with them about the idea of starting up a nonprofit. And uh, we kind of kind of snowballed from there, and now we're we're creating a website. Uh, we're trying to do a golf tournament, the Jack's Strokes for Strokes, named after my father. Uh, that's going to be in May 20th of 2023. We just got the uh, confirmation from the golf course at Richmond Country Club. Great golf course. It is, and it's yep. it's local, and yep. that was something I wanted to stay local to the area. You know, mm-hmm. my family's down here, um, mm-hmm. and I I want to bring community back to community service. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the bigger nonprofits aren't really nonprofits. I mean, their people get paid exorbitant salaries, let alone salary. Mm-hmm. They get huge bonuses. You have something like 10% of the net proceeds goes to the charity and the rest goes to paying all these people. Mm-hmm. And think about, you know, when you go to a store and they, oh, do you want to donate a dollar to fight childhood hunger? Well, yeah, I do, but I also want to know who I'm helping. I, I want to be able to sit there and go, oh, I made a difference in someone's life. Mm-hmm. There's so much of this faceless giving. It, it's it's so detached. And if you want people to give, if you want people to care, you have to give them a reason. Mm-hmm. Putting a face with something, you know, my dad knows a lot of people. He's been, he used to be an appraiser in the state and he's done construction for a while. So he, you know, he knows a lot of people in the state. If they know that they're helping him, they're more apt to do it. So it made me start to think, well, 
let's let's do things a little differently. It's in our bylaws that nobody gets a salary. Everything is volunteer. All of the money that doesn't cover operating expenses, because we have to cover our operating expenses. Yeah. But yeah. our operating expenses are minimal. Mm-hmm. There's there's no overhead for, uh, you know, a big fancy office. There's no overhead for our salaries. Nobody gets a bonus ever. We do it because we want to make a difference, mm-hmm. and that's the foundation of the of the Tap Foundation is selflessness. Doing it because you want to do it, not because you get something out of it. Mm-hmm. You get something out of it, and you feel good, and you can see walking down the street, you know, after May, somebody might walk down and see my father who went from being completely paralyzed on the right side and being stuck in a wheelchair to now he's starting to move about with the cane a little bit. They might see him at the store and go, oh, Jack, it's so good to see you're doing well. You know, they don't even have to say a word about being a part of the tournament or anything, but they know and they see him and they can see the improvement. Mm-hmm. That goes a long way. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I just, I, I, I really, I want to do something that's local. We can, we can work with large national things and international, and I, I have no objections to that, but I, I really think people need to feel something again instead mm-hmm. of just this numb giving of, yeah, sure, I can give you an extra dollar on my checkout. Well, what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. It just meant you spent an extra dollar on your groceries. Yeah. You didn't take time out of your day. You didn't go to a fun event and meet people. And, and it's about expanding, too, because we're not just working with uh, with heart issues. We're also working with suicide prevention, especially among veterans, homelessness prevention, not after the fact. I, I want to try to help keep people off the street, not once they're there, get them mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of programs out there trying to help people get them off the street. Mm-hmm what can we do to prevent them from going there in the first place? Let's deal with the core issues. Let's actually address what the problems are, not just the symptom. The symptom is they're on the street. What put them there? Do they have an addiction issue? Do they have PTSD? Do they, you know, did life just suddenly fall apart in the last week? I I mean, having an avenue would be helpful for them, I think. Um, and as I mentioned, the PCVI, we want to work with them as well because they've done a lot for veterans and a lot for, I I feel like not just veterans, but their families because the PCVI kind of, it tries to bridge the gap between serving and knowing people that served. Uh, Mark Santow, who, who runs the Providence branch, he's not a veteran, but he probably understands us more than some veterans do that haven't deployed Mm -hmm. because he's dealt with us and heard our stories and seen our tears. Um, Veterans Voices with Trinity Rep, we're trying to do some stuff with them because Trinity has always been a very, very good, good, a good group to work with. They do a lot with PCVI. They did their Veterans Voices event last year, which literally gave a voice to veterans and and allowed a lot of us to say the hard things and i kind of i want to do that with the foundation i want to give people a platform where we're not just giving money but we're making a difference in people's lives Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Very cool. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for wanting to create something like this. Uh, we had we had uh, somebody on the podcast, uh, Stephanie Potts from the Maddie Potts Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're great uh, community. Uh, you know, they're great for the community. They've done a lot for Chero and Southern Rhode Island. And uh, that story is tragic. Uh, yeah. But fortunately, a lot of great things has happened from the Maddie Potts Foundation uh, from a community standpoint and helping support people um, in the school district as well. And I'm excited to see what you guys can do for people. Um, you know, to, to start out like this is amazing, you know, because like you said, you get a lot of these companies who it's a, a lot of times it's not necessarily a nonprofit, but it's a company that has been started with a product and they donate a specific portion back and they sort of use the, the donation port po- portion of the company as a selling point, yep. which is a, it isn't a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a great thing either. Cause it's great. They're, they have a product, they're selling it. Mm-hmm. It's a business. It's good that they're doing that. They're creating jobs and then they're donating a portion of their sales back. But is using that as a, uh, selling point of your business is that a moral thing i'm not exactly sure if i'm qualified to say that or not but i'm curious to hear like what your thoughts like black rifle coffee is a good example mm-hmm. of that i mean i know they've done a lot for their community for the veteran community but i'm curious to hear like your your opinion on on companies like that so my my personal opinion is like honestly even so doing this podcast i i just did an interview with the school paper I didn't really want to do them yep. because it's not about me. And when a company does that and they go, hey, look what we're doing, they're making it about them. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that's their intent, that's what happens. So you know, personally, I, I, I disagree with that as part of the marketing. Like, I understand that's bringing people in. It's bringing them business, mm-hmm. which allows them to continue to give and, and whatnot, but it goes back to the, the selflessness, you know, it's, that's not a selfless act. That's still somewhat selfish, even Mm -hmm. though it benefits people, you're doing it because it's benefiting you. Mm -hmm. Not because you just want to do something good. You're, you're doing it because you want more money. Yep. And I mean, we all want more money. Unfortunately, money exists, which that's a whole other argument. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, if your company is that good, you shouldn't need to ride on your own coattails of your nonprofit work. You should be able to stand on your product alone or the people and, you know, talk about what the people in your company do. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, I just, I feel like it's a little disingenuous to, uh, to use that as part of your advertising. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, they make good coffee. I've had it. <laughs> That's what I mean. I mean, it, it, your product is good. Yeah. Just push your product. That's yeah. the whole reason people are coming to you to begin with. Yeah. And then on your website or whatever, you can have your, hey, donate here, help us with this. Mm-hmm. And you can mention it towards the end of an ad or something, but don't make your ad about that. Yeah. I think it's also a good thing that they basically hire only veterans as well in their business. Yeah. And I think they've gone public recently, which is really interesting to see a coffee company like that sort of go public you know which is interesting as well probably speaks to their their growth intent i would imagine yeah i mean it 
it's a double-edged sword, really. I mean, it mm-hmm. is and it isn't because it's a good thing they're making jobs for all these veterans and using it as a selling point is sort of like, uh, but then you just fall back again. Oh, they're hiring. The, you know, it's, it's a it's weird a subject. Yeah. It's a weird subject and uh, not really for me to comment on. Uh, but yeah, um, so I think bef- I will start wrapping up a little bit, but I want to give somebody a shout out who connected us, Aminata. Mm-hmm. Yes. So for, for those of you who don't know, uh, me or, or Jeremy. Uh, so Amanada Sal is a, she works at Navigant Credit Union in the Wakefield branch in Rhode Island. She's an amazing woman, like mm-hmm. one of the nicest people I've ever met. So I want to give her a shout yeah. out because she connected us. She helps me with everything I have to do banking wise. I know it's like a, a you know, a <laughs> weird topic, but she's amazing. And, uh, she's, having a little bit of health issues so just send your prayers mm-hmm. her way if you know who she is i think you should find her on facebook and just tell her you're thinking about her Amanada is the greatest person on the one of the greatest people yeah. on the planet she has an amazing story and uh, hopefully she can come on the podcast later to tell it so i just wanted to give her a shout out and thank her for connecting uh jeremy to me because this has been an amazing conversation and i really appreciate you coming on i appreciate it max and i'll, I'll- attest to that as well. Amanada is, she's a, a great human being. I, I didn't realize that she had some issues going on right yeah. now, but I mean, she was the one who initiated the conversation about this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, I just told her what I was doing. I was opening the account for the foundation and she was the one who said, well, let me help you with that. And yeah. I mean, that's part of the selflessness that we were talking about. She didn't yeah. get anything out of that. Nope. She just did it because it was a nice thing to do. And I, I, can't talk about how much I respect that and appreciate it. She's amazing. Uh, and yeah, so, um, something I end every podcast with is the question of what sort of advice would you leave for the listener? It could be life, you know, business, you know, anything that you want to leave. What, what, what sort of advice would you leave the listener? I think one of the most succinct and probably most accurate pieces of advice I've given to somebody was at the end of the day, it's on you. No matter who you're doing something for or with or what you're doing, we are responsible for our own actions and decisions. And if you want to do something and if you want to make something out of yourself and your life, it's on you. Do it. Don't wait for life to happen because life's not going to wait for you. Wow. Very well spoken. And I appreciate that. And honestly, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you very much for coming on and, and talking about your life and your history nut. You have to add this. So if you, if you give this to anybody else, right, just put first portion history nut. <laughs> Cause I'll, I'll definitely add that. It's, <laughs> I, and I, I appreciate definitely the, uh, the chance to promote the foundation. And yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. The part about me was kind of tough to do, but that's okay. I'm, I'm well, well, that's that's the point of the podcast is that everybody has a different background and everybody can learn from everybody's backgrounds. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing that. And thank you very much. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much, Max. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And I will catch you in the next one.